good friend of mine. Hello and welcome to the Huntsman World Senior Games Active Life. My name is Kyle Case and I'll be your host on this amazing journey as we attempt to help you get the most out of your life. Joining me in the studio today is my co-pilot, Jeff Harding. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Kyle. How are you? I'm doing good. I, you know, I'm doing really good. You, you look like you're doing day. well. It's a good day. Yeah, you're thank great. you. Uh, good day, good topic that I want to start us off with. And that is? And it, it's an important one. Uh, we try to tackle the important issues here. We and do. Uh, this is another one. Not necessarily a fun one, but it's an important one that we need to know about. I want to talk a little bit about strokes. Oh, that's not fun at all. No, it's not. We've talked about it before. Yep. Um, it's a little close to home for many of us. I know in, <clears throat> excuse me, in our family, we've been affected by stroke in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, I, I, I have friends and neighbors that are affected by it. It's definitely uh, a situation that's out there. And I want to talk about a few things that we can do to help avoid a stroke. Which is always important. Which is, which is a good thing. This yes. is uh, all from an article that I found in Reader's Digest written by Lisa Marie Conklin. Uh, first of all, Jeff, I think it's important to understand what a stroke is. Okay. Basically, uh, a stroke is a blockage of blood flow to an area in your brain. And what happens when you cut off oxygen to that area is the brain cells in that area begin to die. Yes, they do. And that means that you lose some of your abilities like limb control, sight, speech, maybe even memory. Depending on the part of the brain that the stroke takes place yeah, in. Yeah, depending on the situation. According to the National Stroke Association, for the 800,000 people in the United States who have a stroke for the first time or a reoccurring one... The effects can vary from person to person. A mini stroke may only raise minor issues like temporary weakness in an arm or a leg, and then you bounce right back, no problems. A major stroke can cause permanent damage mm-hmm. or even potentially death. Sure. So it's a serious thing. Every four minutes in the United States, a person dies from a stroke. And that's really too bad, Jeff, because 80% of those strokes are preventable. Wow. 80 that's a lot. Percent of the strokes are preventable. So I want to talk about some of the things, few things that we can do to help prevent a stroke. Sounds great. You ready? Number one, I don't think any of these are going to surprise you, but I think they're okay. just worth worth uh, repeating, repeating, and and re- reminding. Um, high blood pressure. Yep, that's a big one. I, you you knew that one was coming, right? Oh, yeah. Doctor Shazam Hussain, who was the director of Cerebrovascular Center in the Cleveland Clinic, says high blood pressure is the most significant preventable risk factor for a stroke. If blood pressure could be controlled in the United States, he says half of strokes would be eliminated. Half of strokes come from having too high blood pressure. So is that an argument for legalizing pot? (laughs) You didn't see that one coming, did you? Sorry. (laughs) I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, Unfortunately, (laughs) what happens with high blood pressure is that it wreaks havoc on your arteries. And when your arteries are weakened, or when they suffer damage, they can burst or clog more easily. Sure. And that's why doctors push their patients to hit a kind of a healthy blood pressure number. The newest guidelines, and they have changed these recently, recommend blood pressure be less than 130 over 80. And one way to lower your blood pressure is to limit your salt intake to less than 1,500 milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. So high blood pressure is a big one. The next one won't be a surprise to you, Jeff. It's high cholesterol. Oh, yeah. So cholesterol in the arteries can block normal blood flow to the brain, causing a stroke. That's one reason to watch your cholesterol level. Ideal total cholesterol is about 200. Once you hit 240, you're at higher risk for stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do we do about cholesterol, you might ask? Well, you eat bran or, or you <laughs> oatmeal. 
Well, yeah, whole grains are definitely very good. Oatmeal's a, a, a significant help in the battle against high cholesterol. And your blood sugar. <laughs> and your blood sugar. It's also important to ask your doctor about your very low-density lipoprotein or your VLDL levels. High levels of VLDL cholesterol are associated with developing plaque that deposits on the artery walls, mm -hmm. which, of course, can narrow the artery, which in turn restricts the blood flow, and that's the whole problem with the stroke. Uh, they say that due to the beneficial fats in fish, eating fish twice a week is recommended. In addition, cutting back on your sugar and your refined carbohydrates, as well as eating, uh, as you said, whole grains, um, oatmeal is a good one. Yep. Uh, that can help uh, lower, lower your triglycerides and your high levels of VLDL. Uh, they also say when it comes to high cholesterol that exercise, daily exercise, is essential. Sure. Here's one that I don't think people are going to like to hear. But it's okay. an important one. We need to get it out there. And that is we need to eliminate or at least dramatically limit our diet drinks. Yeah, not a problem for me. Yeah, and I, and I know you don't drink diet sodas. But um, a brand new study published in Stroke Magazine suggests that downing just one artificially sweetened drink a day, just one just a one. day, just one Diet Coke a day triples the risk of stroke. Mom, are you listening to this? <laughs> I know. There's a lot of people out there that can't get by without their Diet Coke, but it's a, it's a serious thing. The researchers tracked the health of postmenopausal women, some of whom drank artificially sweetened beverages. Those who drank at least one artificially sweetened beverage a day had almost three times the risk of stroke wow. or dementia compared to women who had artificially sweetened beverages less than once a week. So That's there's something serious going on yeah, there. there is. This study adds to the evidence that limiting the use of diet beverages is perhaps the most prudent thing to do for your health. A um, couple of other things really quickly. Smoking. We know smoking's unhealthy. Oh, yeah. Uh, but not everyone realizes how much it raises your risk of strokes. Smoking drives down levels of HDL cholesterol. That's the good stuff. While raising LDL cholesterol. That's the bad stuff. Which is uh, when it's too high, it can damage the cells that line the blood vessel walls and make blood cells sticky and more likely to clot and block blood flow to the heart and brain. So stopping smoking is certainly critical in the prevention of smoke. And then the last one, obesity. Obesity increases multiple risk factors, including your high blood pressure we just talked about, your yep. high cholesterol we yep. just talked about. It uh, uh, leads to diabetes, according to the Centers for Disease Control. A BMI or a body mass index of 30 or higher is what they consider in the obese range. And the good news is, Jeff, is that every little bit of weight that you lose will drive down your risk for stroke. So right. you know, losing some weight can make a big difference. As we said at the beginning, not very much fun nope, there. But nothing new either. But uh, important stuff that we need to remember, 80% of strokes are preventable. Wow. Yep. So it's worth taking a look at some of these things. Sure is. Jeff, today's guest, join us by phone from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, Jack Bishop has a doctorate degree that, among other things, specializes in gerontology and human services. He's a published author and has presented around the world about active aging. Ellen Dreiber Hassel spent much of her professional career as an administrator in higher education. More recently, she has also published and presented on active aging, also all around the world. Both are veterans and both are principal partners in Aging Matters, LLC. Welcome, Jack and Ellen, to the show. We're, we're grateful that you have uh, some time to spend with us today. Thank you very much for having us. We appreciate the opportunity. So we just want to jump right into this, Jack, and uh, tell us what exactly is Aging Matters, LLC? 
Aging Matters LLC is a certified service-disabled veteran-owned small business. This means that we're registered through the General Services Administration and the Small Business Administration. And in addition, and probably most importantly, we are certified as a small business by the Veterans Administration to conduct business with all federal government agencies. Finally, we're certified by the state of New Mexico as a resident veteran business. In addition, our name, Aging Matters LLC, comes from our desire to examine as many of the biological, cultural, historical, physiological, psychological, social, and spiritual contexts of the aging process that we can, which occur across the lifespan. We're also social gerontologists, which means we are social scientists who specialize in the science of aging to study, analyze, and report on the whole aging process. We act as social gerontologists, which means we see aging as having a social context, which means it's a two-way street. It's the effect of the older adult on our society and conversely, the effect of society on the older adult. Then we are researchers. We conduct empirical investigations, which simply means we observe and measure phenomena. And in the case of aging, all the actors and factors which affect the aging process. We know that aging does matter because no two people age identically, not even twins, and each of our aging processes will differ. So you've uh, you covered a lot of ground there. You guys are involved in a lot of things. That's fantastic. I'm just curious, Jack, how long have you guys been working in this active aging industry and and really promoting the idea that aging matters? We've had the business for 10 years. Okay. Uh, we, uh, we supported uh, some of the uh, state agencies and not-for-profits not for before that, but we were students of gerontology at that time. Now, you're based in New Mexico. How, how big of a circle is your outreach? Are you able to reach out through technology outside of the area? Oh, Absolutely. We, uh, we travel, and that okay. was part of the reason we enjoy traveling. We enjoy doing presentations anywhere and everywhere. Uh, so in New Mexico, it's uh, uh, state borders uh, all the way. It's the fifth largest state geographically. We've been all over the place doing this for the last 10 years. And, uh, of course, we'd always... Uh, enjoy going to other states, but our responsibility really through the state agencies that we support has been to work with the New Mexico older adult population. Okay, awesome. But if someone had some of the, you know, wanted additional support or some help, um, counseling or, 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 you know, whatever it is, you mentioned a lot of things that you guys are involved in there's a way that they could reach out to you and uh, get some help and at least get some access to some resources. Is that correct? Uh, sure. Uh, New, Me- New Mexico has uh, a, a good uh, resource through the uh, state agencies. Uh, and either that or we could, be, we could be called, we could be contacted, and we can direct people to it. Now, for states outside of New Mexico, we're not necessarily familiar with all the systems okay. that might be available, but certainly for New Mexico, yes, we can cover the bases here. Awesome. 
So you mentioned a phrase that I, I'm, I was a little unfamiliar with. I hadn't heard it before. Social gerontology. What is social gerontology? Well, a social gerontology approach is really important to aging because it examines the person's impacts on society as they age, as well as society's impact on the aging person. It really takes into account all of the things that Jack mentioned earlier, the physical, social, emotional, spiritual, financial aspects of aging, things that a person encounters on a daily basis. It's really a holistic view of the aging process as compared to the field of geriatrics, which is really working with the maladies of aging or what happens when something goes wrong. So both Jack and I are doctorally qualified gerontologists. We're not medical doctors, so we don't diagnose problems. Rather, we help people think about and plan for the aging process in order for them to age in the best best possible manner for them. You heard Jack say that not even a set of identical twins will age in the same manner. Jack and I conduct our work as part of an engaged aging approach where we believe the older adult takes very determined and very deliberate proactive steps to make decisions about their personal aging. Because when older adults don't do that, or refuse to engage their aging process for themselves, the result is frequently something that they would not choose for themselves, making them very unhappy in life. And in order to conduct this engaged aging approach, we're really quite fortunate to be able to partner with organizations which profess a similar mindset as Aging Matters carries. So um, we used to sell a T-shirt in our gift shop at the Huntsman World Senior Games that says, aging is the ultimate extreme sport. Um, <laughs> based wow, on, <laughs> I agree with that. That's fabulous. Based on uh, you know, what you're sharing here, I think you subscribe to that concept. Absolutely. There is no doubt about it. Because you know, when we begin a presentation, um, sometimes people will mistake this as just a pure joke, and it's not. But right. if you're not aging, what's the alternative? You're dead. Well, absolutely. So you know, you look at you look at your alternatives, and and maybe aging is one of the better ones out there. You're well, listening. I think it is, and I think what people really have to remember, and sometimes we get too caught up in what's going on around us, and we don't remember these things, is that. Each chapter in our aging process, which begins the moment we're born, is going to have different and unique challenges in it. Absolutely. So being a two-year-old is very different than being a 65-year-old. Being a 16-year-old is very different than being an 85-year-old. Yeah, Being a 40-year-old is very different than being a centenarian. Right. So what we have to do is educate people to the point where... They understand changes are going to occur and really help them equip themselves to make decisions that's best for them about their personal aging process. And it definitely is a process for all of us, no question about it. You're listening to the Husband World Senior Games Active Life, and we're visiting with Dr. Jack Bishop and Ellen uh, Dreiber-Hassel about the process of aging and how it relates to each one of us. Now, you mentioned that you partner with various organizations. What are some of the projects uh, that you partner with, and, and who are you working with to help 
get the word out about how we can actively age? So in New Mexico, a not-for-profit organization, specifically New Mexico Senior Olympics Incorporated, carries the older adult health promotion flag for the state agencies responsible for the aging and long-term services for the older adult population. So we partner with them, New Mexico Senior Olympics, to conduct health promotion programming each year. This has been occurring now, as I said before, for about 10 years. Our programming consists of aging-related presentations, non-computer-based programs, the empirical investigation of aging phenomena, and participation in the bulk of their events as data collectors. So in addition to that, we look for -for not-for-profits to partner with as fiscal agents as we conduct aging-related studies. We're currently in discussions with two not-for-profits now to determine best fit for some stated grant requirements. Now, we'll also partner with other state agencies as grant subcontractors. The best example, the best recent example is that we partnered with the New Mexico Department of Health on their award of a Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Community Living Grant. We've done this for the past three years as what they call fidelity observers of evidence-based fall prevention programs to ensure the fidelity of the course as it relates to fall risk mitigation and falls prevention in the older adult population. So it sounds like you're really involved in a, just a wide variety of things, especially as they relate to older Americans and, and aging. Um, you mentioned that you do a lot of research. Uh, what types of research are you involved in? We conduct research that's really referred to as mixed methods a mixed methods research approach where we judiciously combine quantitative and qualitative techniques to gather our raw data. So quantitative research is where we're working empirically, working with numbers, or we're counting things. Qualitative research refers to examining meanings, concepts, characteristics, and descriptions. So some examples of quantitative research would include surveying, correlational work, experiments, and causal comparative work. Examples of qualitative research would be phenomenology or studying a particular issue, Uh, ethnography where you're looking at the ethnic background of someone, case study analysis, where you are examining one particular situation of a person or a group, or grounded theory, where you are examining something according to a previously established aging theory that is known in the profession. The research format that seems to work best for us and the types of topics we're interested in is longitudinal research or research that's conducted over a period of time. The advantage to this format for us, as social gerontologists, is that it provides the researcher with numerous opportunities to interact with the study participants. And this is vital when conducting either mixed methods or qualitative research. 
Developing a trust level between all parties is absolutely essential. Speaking of which, all of our or all participation in our research is totally voluntary and completely anonymous. Our research conforms to the basic steps of scientific method, that being having a question, conducting background research, formulating a hypothesis, conducting a test, analyzing the data and making conclusions, and sharing the findings. So you've definitely been... Uh, I mean, immersed in in research. It sounds like you've done a lot of it and uh, employed a lot of different ways to conduct the research. I'm I'm curious in all the research that you've done, if there's been something that's really caught you off guard or been surprising that you weren't expecting before you started the research. Well, I think I have to backtrack here a little bit and kind of preface the answer by saying when we chose our doctoral programs. Jack chose to be a quantitative person, okay. and I chose in my program to be a qualitative person. Sounds like a good mix. Well, it, it is for us for a number of reasons, primarily because counting the numbers doesn't always tell the whole story. Listening to the voice of the older adult doesn't always tell the whole story. But when we can piece the best of both worlds together, then we feel like we have a better understanding of the problem that we've chosen to research. And so some of the, the issues that we see, uh, we're conducting some research now on, on barriers to activity. And so it's kind of interesting to see what barriers are popping up in which categories of people. We haven't completed that analysis yet, and we're actually still collecting the data. Um, so I can't really answer your question about are there big surprises, but we know that there definitely are going to be some surprises as we finish the data collection and the analysis. So I, so I, uh, I, that to me, that sounds like a very fascinating study because I know that there are the things that keep me from being active sometimes. Um, and I know your, I know your study's not done. Your research isn't done. Uh, and we've only got about maybe 30 seconds left, but, um, what are you seeing? What, what are you seeing that, that is the big reason so far in this research as to why people don't get active? All right. I'll, uh, I'll try to tackle this in 30 seconds. I think the, uh, the, you're asking me personally and I'll give you a personal response. I think the reason is a lack of willpower. Okay. Especially in the older adult population, willpower being uh, defined in this case as the muscle of the mind. So without willpower to become active, uh, you can be, uh, self-motivated to become active, but that does, that's not enough. That's not the step that you would need to take to actually become active. That willpower barrier stops a lot of this activity process. I think I would agree with that. I, I know that. Uh, definitely. I would <laughs> I know, definitely concur. I know that that's been part of my problem, uh, you know, oftentimes. And I, I do try to get active. I try to, to work out. But absolutely, you do have to just... There's all techniques and there's there's tricks and there's ways to to get about it. But at the end of the day, Jack, you've just got to grit your teeth and get the job done. Am I right? 
That's correct. Uh, if you don't actually do it, uh, you'll uh, you'll lack that uh, the one characteristic that we all need to be able to go out and become more active. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that, guys. No one can do it for you. Right. You have got to make the resolution to do it, and then you have got to get your body and your mind so in tune that you go out and you do it not once, not twice, but on a very regular and habitual basis. There's just no other way to say it. You just have to get after it. Hey, guys, we've run out of time, but thank you so much, Jack and Ellen, both of you, for joining us, and uh, good luck in all your research. Thank Thank you so much. We appreciate being on the show. So, Jeff, it's time to register for it the Huntsman is. World Senior Game. Speaking of willpower and getting out there and Get getting it done, done, it's very easy to register. All you got to do is visit SeniorGames.net, click on that register button. The process is simple, it's fast, it's secure, and before you know it, you'll be ready to become one of our more than 11,000 athletes who we anticipate will compete this year in the Huntsman World Senior Games. The dates of the games, just a reminder, are uh, October 7th through the 19th for the 2019 Games. Remember to tune in live next and every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on AM 1450 or FM 93.1 for the Huntsman World Senior Games Active Life. And you can subscribe to our podcast pretty much anywhere the podcasts are found. Once you've heard the podcast, give us a review. It really helps us spread the word. Jeff, our inspirational quote comes from the one and only Albert Einstein. Oh, yes. He says, stay away from negative people. They have a problem for every solution. (laughs) Until next Thursday, stay active. Bye, everyone.